Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to episode 62 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is the Professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, everybody. Tonight we look at 1997's Cure, directed by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, um, a Japanese thriller horror, um, which was uh, picked by Stephen on our last episode to look at tonight. Uh, but before we obviously get into that film uh it's time to obviously ask what you've been watching and steven since the last episode what has been holding your interest if anything well i've got a few tonight because i i've had a bit of a uh watch a lot of films thing um basically thanks to you um <laughs> a lot of it is um because you showed me that mubai had a um one pound for three months offer and it's yes. always been a streaming service that i i've been wary of because of its curated nature um, but a pound for three months, I thought I couldn't lose. And actually, it's now my favourite streaming service. Um, so much so, I think I may be um, quitting Netflix. But we shall see. Um, That's a bold statement. Yeah, I know. And, and you, you, <laughs> I'll probably have changed my mind in a month's time. But uh, to be honest with you, even if it's £10 a month, I think Mumbai, for someone like me who likes um, not just Asian cinema, but but lots of foreign subtitled and, um, dare I say, it, art house cinema. It's yeah. a fantastic service, and the curated nature of it is kind of interesting because they do lots of themes. And, you know, funny enough, tonight's movie was on there, wasn't it? Which wasn't planned. Um, but, you know, not only that, but there were a couple of other um, Kurosawa movies on there. Anyway, so I had a little delve in there, and there are a couple of films that, uh, one of which I wouldn't have watched ordinarily, and one I didn't know existed, and I was very glad to have watched. Um, so, firstly, sort of one of the directors that we haven't explored um, very much in the art house vein in the um, in, in South Korean cinema, and to be honest with you, not someone I have watched a lot of his films, but I've watched one or two, um, is uh, Hong Sang Soo, who basically makes sort of lots of sort of quietish dramas slow cinema kind of things usually based around some reprehensible film director or someone in film uh, and and young ladies and lots of going out for eating and getting drunk in fact he often allows his uh, actors to get drunk um and and just sort of films them and there, there is some some stuff around him he you know he maybe he's a He's, he's probably a bit of a dodgy character. Not, not as bad as Kim Ki-duk was, but there's some stuff around him. Um, like I said, I've seen, I've seen a few of his films. Um, you know, he's, he's a bit of a... Not only sort of got his own sort of genre going, but he's also someone who breaks a lot of taboos, so there's a lot more sort of nakedness and subjects that are discussed are there. Um, he himself, he is the... Um, partner of Kim Min Hee who you probably know one of the actresses she's one of the great actresses of modern Korean cinema but you'll probably know her from The Handmaiden 
Um, but she's in lots of his films and basically he had an affair with her and it's public knowledge and you just don't have affairs. And apparently they are, um, they are together. Anyway, this film doesn't um, have Kim Min-hee in it. It's called Tale of Cinema. And it basically starts off with uh, sort of this student who's a bit listless and he's had his exams. He doesn't know what he's going to be doing. And then he meets a young girl who apparently he used to go to school with. And they go out for a night and then they decide to kill themselves. <laughs> as you do. And as you do. And their, their suicide attempt goes, well, it doesn't quite go to plan in the sense that neither of them die. And then we find out halfway through the film that we've been watching a film within a film. And we meet our real lead character, who is some kind of film student-y director sort of twat, um, who takes a liking to the lady who... the actress who played... um, played the lead role in the film that started this film... And he basically stalks around Seoul, um, <laughs> um, and and stuff happens. And yeah, I don't think it is um, Hong Sang Soo's sort of greatest work. It's his sixth film, but really, it's sort of film I just wouldn't have normally picked up normally. And the fact that it was on Mumbai and and some of his other films are on there as well. Um, it's interesting. Don't worry, I won't be bringing it to the show, but um, we may talk about some Hong Sang Soo stuff in the future because I think he's. Um, He's sort of one of those important voices that you always see every film festival as a new a new Hong Sang Soo film. Um, so that was that. Um, I also then picked up something again, which I didn't even know existed, um, which is a film called The Wild Goose Lake, which is a newish film, a couple of years old, by Diao Yinan, who directed um, Black Hole Thin Ice. Who I oh think, yeah, I think we've yeah. both seen that and. Yeah. Um, Enjoyed it, I hope. I think we 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 had it as our recommended viewing for um, Touch of Sin. That's right. So it's in that it's it's in that sort of I don't know sixth seventh generation of uh, probably yeah the newest generation of Chinese directors. Um, Wild Goose Lake also stars um, Guaylo May, who who was in um, Black Cold Thin Ice, um, but. And uh, I think Hugi might have been in it, who's a lead actor as well. It might be a very similar cast. Um, well, that film's going on for five years old now, so he doesn't doesn't make many films. It's another crime, oh, it's a neo noir crime thriller, as uh, Wikipedia says. It's it's another one. Um, basically, in this one, we we follow a sort of a, a minor league crime boss who during an altercation with other members of the of the sort of the, the the town's crime families accidentally kills a policeman he goes into hiding and we we follow his adventures whilst in hiding and the, the way the police and the other criminals sort of would hunt him down um really good um there's a lot going on you know it's it's an art house thriller um it's that's because it's on Mumbai. I think Mumbai actually even produced it. It's one of those um, seems to be on their um, so maybe if not produced, they distributed it. Um, really good, well worth well worth watching if you like Black Hole Thin Ice. But just the, in fact, there's some fantastic pieces in it. There's there's there's, there's some really really fun visuals. Um, the, the director does like to 
I don't know, show off sort of some of the weirder aspects of just general Chinese society. There's a lovely piece where um, there's people that are sort of doing sort of like country dancing. <laughs> but they've all got sneakers which have got neon lights around them. Okay. So in the nightclub, you sort of you see this, and then they find a body later on. Everyone walks out to the crime scene, but they're still wearing these neon lit sneakers, <laughs> and it's just it's just a, a wonderfully bizarre image. And from my time, at least in Taiwan, I've never been to mainland China, but I can absolutely see that happening because sort of group activities are, are everything and they don't often care that they all look like idiots. Um, if you've ever seen a, uh, a, a, a Chinese music star concert, you'll see they, they, they go for all this <laughs> <laughs> sort of um, glowing lights and things like that, like, like people here just don't do. Um, but really, really good. Um, and, and I didn't even know this film existed. So again, thank you for that, sir. And finally, um, a film which I've had on my watch list. This wasn't on Mubai. I got this looked at this another way. Um, it's a film I tried to watch a little while ago, and um, for some reason I ended up watching something else. It's called Exit. It's another South Korean film, 2019. Um, it's a, sort of an action comedy um, starring Joe. Jong Suk as the lead character and Yuna from Girls' Generation in what they're calling her first lead role. And to be fair, she's really good. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> basically, he's um, he's a bit of a man child. He's in his thirties, maybe his forties. Still lives at home. Doesn't have a good job. All all he's got is his sort of love of rock climbing, really. And he's, I think he teaches at a local gym. You know, like one of those indoor wall kind of things. Um, it's his mother's seventieth birthday as the eldest son, um, and you know, and, and he, he's not only the eldest son, but you know, he just has not achieved anything in his life. And there's nothing can be worse in a nation family than being a grown man who's achieved nothing in your life. It's his mother's seventieth birthday. He's been told to arrange a party. He arranges it two hours away in the middle of Seoul, just because he happens to know one of the people that organises events there is this girl that. He once asked out and she said, no, let's be friends. Um, but he's still holding a torch for her. I think he met her at Rock Climbing Club at university. The, some of the timing is a bit weird. Yeah. Never mind. So they go off to Seoul. And um, do you remember in the farewell, that, that, that whole wedding party, which is full of lots of humour, um, you know, the, the meal that they have, and there's all sorts of family stuff going on. Well, oh, the, the first banquet, yeah, yeah. But the first bit of that is a bit like that, and it's hilarious. <laughs> and this guy's got this wacky, hilarious family, and then in true Korean cinema style, they <laughs> just they have a terrorist set off gas attack, <laughs> in which people fucking die. That's not oh, wow. what I'm laughing. Um, so he sets, basically sets off a poison gas attack in, in, in the middle of this district of Seoul where this uh, party is happening. Um, and yeah, it's like a sarin gas attack. It's major. Um, the gas goes all over and then starts rising upwards um, for reasons um, due to plot. And of yeah. course, he's a rock climber and him... And, and, and so the sort of second part of the film is getting his family safe and then the third part of the film is him and Yuna running across and up the rooftops of downtown Seoul trying to escape from this poison gas um, meanwhile maybe falling in love with each other but to be honest with you there's not a huge amount of that um, it's 
absolutely fantastic. Um, it's been a while since I've seen a good, fun action romp from South Korea. Um, quite yeah. a lot of them these days are either a bit big budget, a bit serious, or they are a bit too genre-based. Um, there were a few of these a few years ago. There was one called Quick, which was set on a motorbike. And basically, you get some kind of actor, some hot actor, and a somebody who's trying to a female actress who's sort of breaking out from the from some girl group and there's just there's just a, a load of them um to be honest with you i've kind of s- stayed away from them for a while because they're usually pretty trite and, and the high concept doesn't pull off high concept here works brilliantly and apart from the fact that it's a poison gas attack where people are really dark we're well, not really dying but you know dying within the context of the film yeah it's hugely entertaining the main two cast are fantastic um I actually, for another reason, I watched the film Free Solo at the same time. So I've been feeling a little vertiginous about <laughs> about climbing full stop on my TV in the last couple of weeks. But I have to say, if Exit, if it gets some kind of release um, on home media in the West, or if it um, comes on some kind of streaming service it might appear on Netflix, Netflix have got an interest of picking up Korean films recently I'd really recommend it um, came out 2019 so sort of, I think it was like one of the last big hits pre-pandemic and it's fantastic I couldn't recommend it more so yeah from two little heart, art house uh, watches to a real crowd pleaser. It's interesting that the crowd pleaser really excited me, and it's it's probably the best thing I've seen from Korea for a good couple of years. And that's awesome. it. Oh, very nice. How about yourself? Uh, for myself, there was a rewatch as I recently did an episode um, again on Tell Two Sisters, uh, from the MBDS showcase with uh, Jess Manzo from French Toast Sunday, uh, which was fun to revisit that movie and it still holds up even if you know the twist ending it's still a lot of fun even though that flashback scene at the end just constantly gets me because it's, it's not really highlighted as being a flashback as as such it um so it ends on a very weird note i still feel now i mean yeah but, I mean, as, if you want... as you know that's one of my favorite films of all time so really i, I look forward to um to uh, to listening to your episode on it. Yeah, I mean, people can obviously go back and listen to our episode on it as well. Because we did, uh, we obviously did that a few episodes back, so uh, you can check that out, which was our pick for this year's Halloween. Um, a more recent watch, I checked out Space Sweepers from 2021, which is South Korea's first jaunt into the big-budget space opera scene. Um... It was okay. It felt like it went on about half an hour too long, which I guess is the same for most uh, modern films uh, these days, especially this sort of big budget sort of nature. I think if it had been like an hour and a half, this one would have been perfect. It's kind of in the same category as the likes of Space Truckers and Space Raiders, um, just that sort of blue-collar sort of space um, where you've got this group of misfits who come across this humanoid robot that uh, is very important to uh, upsetting the current status quo where Earth is being abandoned because we basically run it into the grounds of very Wally-esque um, and at the same time you've got this Elon Musk style billionaire who's terraforming planets um, and basically running his own sort of control of the social order so it's a really it's an interesting multi 
national cast um and the actual main cast themselves are all really good including um a robot character who i'm sure was voiced by the uh same actor who does claptrap in the borderland games if you listen to the english dub I don't know if you play Borderlands at all, Steve. I haven't played Borderlands. Oh, that's the one with the lovely soul shaded graphics, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I, I probably something I probably would pick up. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. currently got a film in production being directed by Eli Roth, who for some reason has decided that rather than getting the original voice actor for Claptrap, he's going to cast Jack Black in the role instead. Jack Black's very good, but why can't you just get the original guy? I guess things like that is what gets films made, unfortunately. So that was that. I mean, it's on Netflix at the moment, so you can obviously check that out. Um, more importantly, though, it's time for Dragon Ball chat. Da, da, da. <laughs> Episode 457. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've... Uh, got back into watching the original dragon ball z i've finally finished off the first 25 episodes of the first arc of the series which means i can now start watching the first movies of the dragon ball series uh z series because most of the first four i was still kicked in after episode 25 uh so i've watched the first of them and found out that it was actually more of a crossover between the original dragon ball series and dragon ball z and that's a uh, dragon ball dead zone um, again, you could watch this not having known anything about Dragon Ball at all and just enjoy it as kind of like a superhero kung fu style movie. It's just a lot of screaming and punching and kicking. It's just a really fun, brisk watch. So um, I definitely recommend checking that out if you've got the slightest interest in Dragon Ball at all. Um, I don't think Steven does, but... No. Well... Okay. Uh... <laughs> I just you've just reminded me of something else I watch. <laughs> okay. Um yeah, I, I'm aware of Dragon Ball. There's there's this whole sort of it's more than just the the manga though, isn't it? There's like computer games Yeah, and, yeah, I mean it's and, a and whole... like the whole cultural thing. What you've just reminded me of is that I, I did watch something else, but I didn't watch it all the way through because it was so dreadful. Okay. I watched I watched the live action version of Gatchaman. Which us in the West might know better. Oh, that's from the um, and, and director of Cash Earn. Yeah, might know us as um, and, and good films. Um, oh, no, no, Battle, wait a minute. Battle of the Planets um, is, you know, the, from my youth, that was sort of the, one of the great cartoons that would be on after school, um, which obviously was a repurposing of, of old Gatchaman cartoons. Um, they made a live action version of it. And it's dreadful any way you slice it, other than the look. And one of the reviews read was, "This is the worst live action make um, reinterpretation of a classic anime, other than Dragon Ball Z." (laughs) (laughs) That's how it came up. (laughs) Yeah, the uh, Dragon Ball Evolution is not good at all. I'm just I'm getting my things confused here um, because it's not. I thought it was at all. Um, for some reason, when I when you first said it, I thought it was. Um, there's a film which has got a similar name. Um, this from the director of Keshen, and then as you were talking, I thought, oh, it's um, it's the Takashi Miike one, but no, that's Yataman. No, that's Yataman, and there's a space battleship Yamoto, which is really good, which yeah. is uh, which is another remake of a um, of a classic uh, anime, but. No, but I mean, 
I, I am aware of Battle of the Planets and Gatchaman yeah. and it's weird history Just... and re- I mean there's not even the, 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 there's the recut American version, then there's an American, there's the American version which is just redubbed of the original, and then there's the original, and then there's at least two resets and reboots. <laughs> but you know, for folks my age, Princess, she was the hottest drawn chick. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the the visuals on this film are fantastic. Don't get me wrong, but the the story is just dire, and it's just been changed in stupid ways, and the dialogue is yeah, oh, and misses the point. Yeah, Gadgetman and like Battle of the Planets, that's all the same sort of era. There's the likes of um, Lost City of Gold and Ulysses 31. Mm, it's that, uh, that era where we were being anime sneaked to us and we weren't quite sure what it was. We yeah, just... we, used to get, we used to get you know Jap- Japanese and French animation fed to uh, us. In... You're talking about Dog Tanyon and the Three uh, Musketeers. Absolutely. Wasn't Ulysses 31's French, isn't it? It is a yeah, it's a French co-production. Yeah, um, which is annoys me because if you go on Spotify, they got the Ulysses Fetty One soundtrack, but it's all in French. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can listen to the theme tune. And uh, no, it's just some guy wobbling away in yeah. French. I was like, no. Certainly in the UK, it was sandwiched there between Paddington and Grange Hill, <laughs> and um, I'm just really, really different. We did. You know, these action adventure serials in a way weren't they that's how they were packaged mm. to us and, and they um, always had like a billion episodes like around the world in in uh 90 days and they, it was weird because they had oh, the one with the lion the lion as phineas fogg yeah yeah it's <laughs> they had these weird humanoid animals um in these and as i said the same with dog tanya and the three musketeers and i don't think anyone particularly really liked them but we watched them because they were on and they, but they also had these theme tunes that we all remember, like the, <laughs> all, all for one and one for all. Musker hounds are always ready. You know, kids my age—that's what we sang in the playground. You no, know, it's gonna be um, stuck in my head now for and, the rest uh, of the week. And and obviously, um, was it Philip Schofield? Was he the person on? Yeah, in the broom cupboard. T- t- in the broom cupboard at the time, and they used to, you know, when. Um, Cities of Gold was on. Him and Gordon the Gopher would sing along to the theme tune, and that would be a thing. Um, and this is before the days of video and Crunchyroll and stuff like that. These things were were much more cleverly given to us without ever really knowing. I mean, I had no idea that Battle of the Planets was Japanese because it had been bulldozed yeah. and had all these American bits added in, and the storyline changed. But yeah, sorry, I, I <laughs> completely took over from your Dragon Ball. That's Z okay. Chat, I mean, as I said, I, I'm I'm now as I said, I'm 25 episodes since the original Dragon Ball Z, and I've I mean, I'm watching the cut. What cut? I think I am. I think it's the uncut version. But there's some really brutal moments in this, such as the fact that um, the Super Saiyans, as in our our main fighty people. I'm going to break this down to layman terms for you, Stephen. So. <laughs> the main fighty people, yeah. Because <laughs> there's like a billion characters. I've been listening to um, uh, there's a podcast which is going through all the Dragon Ball episodes um, called, I think it's called Dragon Ball Super. Um, I will find it as we're talking, but yeah, they've, they break things down because they have like their comedian friends who sort of come on and a lot of them have never seen it. So they talk about Lord Beerus and it's, um, it's Kitty Kitty Meow Meow because he's like the Egyptian cat god, but he's like the destroyer of worlds who does asshole things like destroy half a planet, which means that you've essentially fucked a planet. 
Okay. Because <laughs> his whole thing is he's basically, you know, like, if you've got cats and if you don't appease them, they just go and destroy stuff. Now, imagine if the same thing, but the cat could, like, destroy your house because you didn't feed it. So he's like, his whole thing is he's got to be constantly appeased by being given food. And they could, in Dragon Ball Super, they've convinced him that uh, pot noodle is essentially the most highest delicacy on earth. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so he like constantly turns up and he won't do anything until he's like been fed sushi plates and stuff. It's, But yeah, it's called Balling Out Super. It's a really great uh, podcast. They've done the whole of uh, Dragon Ball Super and the, I believe they're currently working their way through Dragon Ball Z at the moment and they do other anime pilots as well but it's a really fun show and worth, definitely worth checking out and adding on your rotation but yeah, in that first uh, 25th we get into the big final fight scene with uh, with Vegeta who's, um, as I say, Super Saiyan and at this point he's still evil and because if they the moon comes out they can turn into like Kaiju-style King Kong monkeys that can fire laser beams, and he's fighting Goku. And at one point, he stands on his legs, which, if you imagine King Kong standing on your legs, is the sort of visual we're going for here. And he's like, "Ah, I stood on your legs." And you have poor Goku here, who gets so beaten up he can't move. Before Freeze then goes on and beats up his son, so we have child beating as well. And it's like, "Well, we marketed this to kids." <laughs> <laughs> And I, I mean, I never grew up with um, Dragon Ball because, you know, my parents not, didn't want us to have Sky, so we had four channels to amuse ourselves. So unless it turned up on Channel 4, I wouldn't have seen it. So I missed that whole There was, yeah, thing. there was Dragon Ball. Is it called Ranma Half or something like that? Oh, yeah, Ranma One Half. That's something else, yeah. They, they, they were the two. So I, rem- I don't remember them as, um, as anime properties or cartoons. I remember them as... The, the the they they were always in the comic shops that I used to go to so I you know I was very into I still am very into American comic books and Dragon Ball and and Random Half is were two of the early mangas that were reprinted I guess guess it was by Dark Horse I guess or someone like that and Lone Wolf and Cub was the other one which which would be up there side by side and I yeah. just remember like Ranma's one with like a panda or something, isn't there? Or, yes. Or um, like that. I, these visuals that I really remember look being striking and quite different to the, I don't know what I was reading at the time. Um, uh, this would have been the late 90s, so some trashy Marvel stuff with foil covers <laughs> or something like that. And, and <laughs> yeah, because whilst... Wizard convinced us all that our comics were going to be worth so much. Yeah, but at I the love... same time, we had that sort of DC revolution where the 2000 AD writers went over to um, DC and oh, so like Grant Morrison, uh, Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, or just Mark, um, late, sort of later ones like Mark Miller were putting out this fantastic stuff. But to the side, I saw a Kung Fu fighting panda and I always wondered, I wonder what that's all about. <laughs> uh, Crying Freeman, that was another one that I seem to remember. Oh, this is... a. Uh, a nostalgia episode for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the thing, because all the manga I had access to was stuff put out through Manga Entertainment, and that mm. was all, like, the cyberpunk and the ultraviolent stuff and the demon schoolgirl stuff, and it was like, wow, there's really messed up stuff happening in Japan. So I missed out on all the cute stuff, like, you know, Fruits Basket and uh, Sailor Moon and things like that. I oh, that's another one, it. Sailor Moon, yes. Ah. Oh. Just made me Tough. think of another film I can bring to the show in a few weeks' time. <laughs> you went to see what pick we got for next time. <laughs> oh, 
I see a challenge, sir. <laughs> it's a little light affair, but um, <laughs> yeah, I've been, uh, as I said, I've been re getting back into my Dragon Ball. I've been watching uh, Full Metal Alchemist again, which has been great. I'm still on Food Wars Season 2, which is just, again, if you like um, Got a Cookery, then which I think I you. Yeah, I think you really get a kick out of um, Food Wars because it's essentially the same sort of madcap nonsense combined with a healthy dose of food porn. And as somebody who has in the last, since Christmas, watched 10 seasons of Hell's Kitchen, (laughs) I think I I could do with some fantasy to go with my food porn. Yeah. Um, I never got into really going to Hell's Hell's Kitchen. I like like No Reservations with Auntie Bourdain. neither, Neither did I until literally a few weeks ago, and now I just put it on when I'm meant to be working and just let it go on through Amazon Prime and every episode's the same. <laughs> it's just, you know, there's there's a few challenges but basically Gordon Ramsay shouts at people in less imaginative ways that you might realise once you've watched a hundred episodes back to back and and a bunch of American people fell and crack under the pressure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, at, at some, I'm halfway through the whole run now. I'm hoping to be clear of this by the end of March. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I just fun. I just finished the last season of Ink Master as well, and the final episode we never actually get a winner because it says in the announcement because of COVID they had to close everything oh, no. down. So, but no, that's fun. Um, but uh, yeah, that's obviously been Dragon Ball random animation chat. Um, indeed, indeed. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, though, it's time to fire up the projector for our feature presentation as we check out 1997's Cure. Is it just me? Or can, yeah. I can't. I, I do find the word cure really hard to say. <laughs> like I don't until you said it. I, I have a real mental block about saying the name of this film. I don't know why. It's like a word... I always feel like I'm pronouncing wrong. Okay, but I don't think it is. Even, even we're both it saying that. it. We're both saying it the same way. <laughs> Just it's not like penguin. No, I know somebody who can't say penguin. They <laughs> <laughs> say penguin or something. What's that? Some oh god, what is that? That's um, but Benedict Cumberbatch, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. In the play Arium, oh. it's like. <laughs> <laughs> but now I've literally got someone who can't. I know someone who can't say it, and it's an or digestive. They say digestive. <laughs> millennium used to be difficult. Millennium. Yeah, millennium. Yeah, <laughs> until until we hit it, and I think we just got used to saying it. But yes, yeah. I couldn't. Use, I didn't used to be able to say shoulders. I used to call them my soldiers. <laughs> oh dear, happy nice. days. Um, obviously tonight we are talking about Cure from 1977 directed by Kiyoshi Kurosawa a first time watch myself uh, the story itself follows a detective investigating a string of murders where an X is carved into the neck of each victim and the murder is found near the victim in each case with little to no memory of what has actually happened to them and all of these murders connected to a mysterious man who apparently has no memories at all the film itself um, was released as part of this new wave of Japanese cinema which included the likes of Hidon 
Now you've got me, you can't say Penguin, and now I can't say... Hideo Nakata. <laughs> yeah, Hideo Nakata's uh, ring and Takashi Shizumi's Gion the Grudge, um, which is kind of strange as this film is nothing like you for those films, and it's very, I would say, almost um, more, leans more towards the art house in its uh, style, but certainly the film has its fans both of uh, critics and audiences praising the direction of the film and certainly Bong Joon-ho has listed it as one of his greatest films of all time including citing it as having one a big impact on his own career as a director um, this film was well also marked his first collaboration with leading man Koji uh, Yakush <laughs> I can see you screwing up my words now Koji Yakushu Yakushu yeah Yakusho. Who, who, who we remember from? Pass. <laughs> uh, he's Is he not the policeman in World of Kanako? Now I'm doubting myself. Maybe he's not. I know he's in 30 he Assassins. Yeah, 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 he's the, no, yeah, he's the main guy in World of Kanako. You see, I would never have put that because the, the main guy in the World of Kanako looks like a homeless detective. Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, it's a lot more clean cut. I was going to bring this later on, but I always still think of World of Kanako as like some sort of pseudo sequel to this because the Where Our Lead character ends up at the end of this film. I okay. imagine he's turned into him. <laughs> I saw the director of World of Kanako um, when I went to see it, you know, the story that I've told before, where um, um, the, the, the director says, Yeah, I took. I took this guy and he's like one of Japan's most serious actors and you know he's a national treasure bar and I turned him into this horrible person for World of Kanako and I thought you haven't seen Cure have you <laughs> <laughs> but yes um, it's it is art house um, and but interestingly I discovered it sort of as 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 what you just said um, as part of that early delve into J-horror, I yeah. discovered Pulse, which is Kurosawa's film from a few years later, about four years later, or Cairo, as it as it's also known. And I delved and, and found this film. I've got an old Japanese version. So it's, it's a little bit before, from 1997. So it's a little bit earlier than, than Audition and Ring and uh, Duon. But it, it's it's sort of in terms of film festivals and the like, it very much was part of that. So I sort of went and discovered this by going to various import sites. It only got a UK release a couple of years ago. I think Eureka um, did a Blu-ray version of it, which I've got. But it's taken that long, 20 years more, for it to actually get a proper release over in the West. So it's one of those films that... Um, yeah, it was very much part of that wave, but never quite made it. And it's interesting when you think of the films that Tartan and other 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 sort of publishers did bring over here. That they didn't bring anything really from um, uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, as far as I remember. But I got into his film, sort of Cure through to Tokyo Sonata, so bad. And even now, you know, if if, if I catch one of his films, I'm really into it. So I was, I was obviously understanding this is a little more art house fair 
and I was wondering how you'd react to it. But I know I have spoken about it multiple times on the podcast before, so I was really intrigued how you'd take to it. Uh, yeah, I mean, despite it obviously having the art sort of styling, styling to it, I mean, this is not the terrorizers sort of territory at all. <laughs> it's actually an enjoyable, an enjoyable thriller, though. Looking at the Mumbai reviews for this film, I think I was watching a different film to what some of these people were watching, as they seem to put it on the same sort of level as like Silence of the Lambs as this super tense thriller, and it's a lot more subtle than that. It's um, kind of like a police procedural. If anything, yeah. um, just with a interesting sort of killer at the heart of it. Um, as the, I mean, the film itself it follows uh, Kenichi um, here by uh, Yakashio. I'm going to apologise in advance. Being the Japanese movie, I'm probably going to mispronounce a whole bunch of stuff, so I'm going to apologise in advance for that. Um, and um, yeah, basically, he's this police detective who's got the mentally so unstable wife and he's teams up with this psychologist named Sakuma um, who basically is they're trying to figure out these these murders and the opening of this film is actually kind of startling really is it you know you open on the cityscape and you see the salaryman style guy and he's walking along and you've got this buzzing light on the underpass and he you know he just tears a pipe off the wall and then next thing we know he's with a a woman who we assume to be a prostitute and next thing we know he's beaten over the head with the pipe before taking a shower which I think annoys me more the fact that he's one of these people who leaves the uh, shower curtain outside of the bath oh people like that are the worst aren't they? <laughs> so you, you know he's, he's just a horrible person um, entirely but I, I think the scene lost some of its impact because I know obviously with the they were trying to go with like him showering off the blood and it going on the floor and it being that style of shot but the fact that it's the shower curtain outside the bath I was more annoyed by that so I think the scene lost a little bit of the impact there but <laughs> no I, I, I agree especially also the Japanese people in their baths and their showers that's a really important ritual to them I can't believe that even if you even if you'd lost your memory that you would fail to observe proper bathroom etiquette um and it's really from here that we cut suddenly to this beach where we are introduced to mamia um who's as i said it's this guy who's got extreme short-term memory loss and he's constantly asking this this guy who meets on the beach like where am i what day is it he has like no clue where he was and then soon after this guy that he's met on the beach who's took him into his home randomly kills his wife and it seems to constantly be the case that Mamia is always at the centre. He interact, he meets with people and then these people go off and commit horrible bloody murders. And it's this mystery that uh, Kenichi is trying to basically get to the bottom of as the film goes on. And at the same time he finds himself becoming more and more psychologically affected, having like fits of rage, uh, which leads to some of the great moments in the in the film especially as we see him have these moments of violence and i can see why you would see this as a sort of prequel to world of kanako because we see him as that same sort of like violent cop when we meet him but obviously hit on some harder times than he has here because mm. it, it's yeah it's it's <sighs> it, the, the violence in this film is shocking in its mundanity you know you describe that moment you know you follow that guy and he just bashes this prostitute over the head 
like out of nowhere we see yeah. that the man the, the one that always gets me is um is the policeman who just shoots dead the guy that he shares the the police kiosk with so and just doesn't really care and he's is the only one we really get to explore why he did it and but it's all the violence is just so mundane and there's no nothing flashy about it just whack whack she's dead bang shot he's dead um this isn't this isn't this doesn't glorify violence it just makes it really mundane and everyday which i guess is the point when we when we start hearing about why people are doing these things oh there's the um oh there's the doctor as well isn't there the female doctor that uh gets to become the surgeon she always wanted to be but none <laughs> but but none of this yeah it's all it's all terribly mundane oh yeah it's you it's the sort of film that you kind of it's a very weird situation it's, it's one of the films that you kind of like to see it remade in the west um being given like a particular visual director someone like a fincher for example and just seeing what they what they do with this, giving it to like just seeing how they would tweak this because I could not see this flying. If this had been put out as a Western relief, I could not see this like flying the way they may have done, obviously, in its Japanese release. I think that it gets more of a pass because obviously their style of filmmaking that it comes from. Um, you can get away with like minimalist soundtrack and just the observations of the mundane, which this film seems to. To, to do a lot of it's you're always playing the observer but there's no like throwing chase sequences there's no gripping soundtrack there's no tense standoffs it's all very sort of mundane police procedural and, that you're seeing it shot through visually very gray and blue very washed out almost i, I mean i always used to think it was because i had a crappy japanese dvd of it but the, the blu-ray <laughs> is equally as 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 washed out and everything feels drained and the energy isn't there but that's kind of the point i guess um it reminded me of films like western films from like the 70s you know that sort of post nixon era of films or political thrillers and stuff like that they, there's nothing flashy about them they're all in that case they're all sort of beige and burnt orange but here it's it feels like um, ah, it feels like a Morrissey record. It feels like a wet Sunday in South End. Every 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 scene has that that sort of visual nothingness to it. But again, I, I guess that's the point. And this wasn't a this wasn't a high budget movie, even in um, even in Japanese terms. This is no, a, it's this, like this, um, a million yen to make. Um, well, a million dollars, wasn't it? Well, again, I only have yeah. what Wikipedia. Yeah, 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 well, was, so. yeah, yeah. A million, a, a million yen wouldn't be very much at all. <laughs> well, it would be JPY, a lot. JPY, whatever that means. Yeah, it does say, but it has a dollar sign as well. <laughs> so I think okay. they've got that wrong. I think, but um, yeah, but it's, it's you know, it's 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 a low budget thriller by a director, very much in the early days. I'm pretty certain this is one of his first. It's not his first feature, but it's. It's get it's getting up there. I mean, uh, Kurosawa, this Kurosawa, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, comes from Pink Cinema, as I think I might have mentioned previously. Um, and this, yeah, I think this is his first proper, not V Cinema or Pink Cinema film. 
Um, but I kind of like that because if it was flashy, I think I'd, um, I think it would lose some of the point of it. But at the same time, you mentioned David Fincher. I mean, this film has clearly been influenced by films like Seven, films like Silence of the Lambs, um, in the sense that this is these are real world. Well, not Seven's not really real world killers, but very realistic depictions of of death and murder. Um, oh yeah, it's definitely. I mean, when you look at this film, it's the same sort of setup here. You've obviously got the detective, and then you've got the the killer who's playing their own sort of games with the uh, with the detective um, here, as they obviously try to try to get to the bottom of whatever game they've got going on here. So yeah, you can definitely draw the sort of comparisons there to Seven John Doe, or you could um, look at like even look at things such as like Manhunter by Michael Mann, where you've mm. got the first um, appearance of Hannibal Lecter, um, spelled with a K, L-E-K-R, <laughs> Lector. Brian um, Cox. Which I, for my money, I mean, he's up there with like the best like the performances up there. I mean, obviously, Mads Michelson took it to a whole new level with uh, Hannibal. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly Brian Cook should not be dismissed for his, his portrayal I mean, of the role. Science of Lambs, 30 years old this month. Um, go and read my article about it on in their own league. But um, no, the the Brian Cox and also um, uh, what's his name Peterson, um, who ended up running Gus, who being Gus Grissom in CSI is the main guy in um, yes William Peterson yes. William Peterson. Um, and it's a it's a very cool as in cold film, very. 80s styling to it. I was very similar to this film in many ways. Mm. In fact, that probably is a much better, a much better fit than maybe Seven or even Silence of the Lambs. It's got that that kind of cool, cold approach yeah. to it, anti antiseptic approach almost to it. But that's right. I mean, both films. Not a lot really happens. I think. Manhunter obviously has more action beats than this one mm. does because you obviously have things such as like the flaming wheelchair sequence um, mm. that some sort of man puts in, but the rest of it's sort of like the pure sort of investigated if work and occasion you get to witness the aftermath of um, of the handiwork, which obviously is a big draw here because we obviously constantly stumble into these scenes, or as you said already, we get to see the scene where the cop goes and shoots. Uh, the guy pretty much at point blank range. Although when people get shot in this movie, it just feels very anticlimactic. It does, but all the violence feels anticlimactic. You know, we we see um, the, the girl at the beginning. She gets hit yeah. over the head twice, and then when we go in, we find out that yeah, she's had the blunt trauma to the head, but he's actually chopped. And it's quite graphic. The the body, isn't it? <laughs> you know that that they that it's been sliced up and there's nakedness on display. Um, yeah, the the shooting. There's no blood. <laughs> I did say that it's all the other bits. I was like happy to sort of go with, like you know, when we find the body in the in the in the toilet, and when we have that open, we get see aftermath of that first murder. Um, so the payoffs were all good. It's just like when if anyone got shot here, it just sort of like it. Uh, it felt like they had missed an effect because mm. basically, it just shoots shoots <laughs> shoots someone, and they just stand there, and then they keel over. Yeah. And, it kind of reminded me of um, uh, the Sam Peckmar quote of like when he was talking about like why the blood, the wild bunch was so bloody. It's like, has you ever seen someone get shot and not bleed? And it's like, clearly you're not seeing this movie. Yeah, of course. I remember Japan has no relationship with guns whatsoever. Um, 
they just don't have guns in public or any history of gun violence or I don't even know what the gun ownership is in Japan. It's probably minuscule. So even the sense of a policeman shooting somebody is probably enough for them. They don't need that. They don't need the blood spatter as well. Although there is plenty of blood spatter in other bits of this film. Yeah. So it's just a weird that mm. yeah, I know got, what you, you mean. Have, you've got like a puff or something. You've yeah. got a squib or something. No, I do know um, what you mean. It is, it is almost comical the way the guy goes down. I, do, I, I remember thinking that the very first time I saw it. And it certainly gets sort of worse when you get to the the end, and you have this scene where he's supposed to have like this big moment of wrath, like finally this like this outburst for his these pent up emotions he's been feeling, and um, yeah. It's like, oh, that was a little anticlimactic. <laughs> it is, it is um, wonderfully anticlimactic, isn't it? <laughs> but, um, yeah, looking at uh, Japan's gun laws, handguns are banned outright, only shotguns and air rifles are allowed, and the law restricts the number of gun shops in most of Japan. Yeah, and I think you'll see that in a lot of Yakuza films. You you know, we think there's a lot of shooting and stuff, but quite often we see sort of low-rent Yakuza in Yakuza films. There's a lot of punching and kicking. That, that kicking thing they all do, you know? <laughs> they, um, not, it's not even martial arts, is it? It's just kicking Oh, slack through, isn't it? Yeah. Um, gu- guns and gunplay are not a huge part of Japanese culture well, whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when it comes to, obviously, when we look at the Yakuza, it's dishonourable to to use guns. This is why they, you even when we watch like the Yakuza movie, saw welding swords, as it's like a weapon of honour. Um, so that's why you see them welding swords, and we compare them to the triads, who are more like, we see the big knives, mm. um, and things such as, like, election, and where we have that really horrific stabbing scene on the, the street, where they're all, like, attacking him with the big machetes. Um, but yeah, it's normally, as I said, it's swords are the normal sort of weapon of choice uh, when it comes to it comes to the yakuza. Mm. But what I love about that scene is, 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 well, not that scene, but later on, where they're sort of interrogating the guy who doesn't really remember that he did it, but pretty much confesses, saying, "God, he was fucking annoying. I had to work with him for years, and all he did everything was by the book, and he was really getting on my nerves." And you saw that when you met them earlier on, when they met the, um, the, the, the should we call him the? Um, he's like the catalyst, isn't he? Rather than actually making people do things. Um, and, and I just thought, yeah, I've been there. I've worked with somebody for years that I can't stand, and it wouldn't take much for me to shoot them. <laughs> if I did, if someone had taken my inhibitions away, but you know, that, but it's such a nothing thing to shoot somebody over as well. Which I think a lot of these deaths didn't. Uh, the only one which, the only murder which seemed to come from a really deep and dark place was that was that GP, who was given a right old, inspiring you know glass ceiling. You should have been a surgeon. So the whole years of pent-up rage <laughs> got brought out on her, whereas everybody else it was just yes, you can just do this now I don't know, it was just strange that, that hers was so much more uh, there, there was more to inspire her than there were the others Definitely, so I mean when we look at um, his relationship though with his, his wife because obviously he has the, the wife who has mental mentally ill and provides that rather unique opening to the film where she's obviously reading Bluebeard 
Mm. And I was constantly wondering how she sort of plays into things, but I did, didn't feel that she really played in as much as I would have liked to the film, to be honest. Yeah, because you don't really realise that's his wife to start with, do you? I mean, no. the, the, the reading of Bluebeard is interesting because that is a French fairy tale, I believe, originally, which just shows you the influence of of French culture on Japan, which we hear about time and time again. You know, we'd, we'd normally get inspired by the Brothers Grimm or, 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 or something like that. Um, or, or home folklore. And it's just interesting to hear the story of Bluebeard be read out. Um, and she's clearly, you know, she's she's very sick, isn't she? And um, she, she, you know, she's become detached from society. She's become detached from her relationship. Um, and 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 our lead character is finding it incredibly difficult to deal with. And yes, he starts sort of fantasizing about what he could do with her as he is slowly getting infected by this I don't know this this virus of violence which this guy is passing around um, but then he goes and puts her in a in a home and the, which I the, assume was just more for her own sort of safety because mm. he sees him you have the scene where he comes home and he finds like the raw steak and then he like she comes in she comes in and then she turns something on in the other room, and then he, you see him just like get up, and he just oh, goes and turns tumble, it. It's a tumble dryer, isn't it? And then he's he's come in, turned it off. She wakes up, turns it back on, and goes off. <laughs> and again, we've all been there, right? We've all been there where our partner has done something that's just really wound us up, but we don't tend to kill them. Um, so yeah. yeah. Uh, or but, we don't but, throw a raw steak across the uh, across the kitchen because, I mean, yes, it may make you feel better in the moment, but you're still going to eat that. <laughs> I know you're still <laughs> you're still hungry. Yes, it, that, that's, a, that's not an action which which actually gives you any benefit in the long run, other than that initial. <clears throat> and I was trying, I was sure that I missed something because he comes. I say he comes home and he finds the raw steak on the plate, and I was like, did, did he do something wrong earlier in this movie, and I completely missed it, or? No, she no no she she has she 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 has got some kind of mental illness. She's had some kind of breakdown, and she she thinks she's cooked the steak, yeah, and she thinks she's left. And and he's feeling, um, emasculated because he can't do anything to fix this. Yeah, he's a he's yeah. a he's a man's man, right? A man's men can't, and and also you know Japanese people don't have a great relationship with mental illness anyway um a bit like our royal family sort of thing you know <laughs> that they don't really understand it and they tend to hide people away and put them in homes and things like that so it's never really too clear what's wrong with her but then um, again this film has a whole issue with never making some things overly clear like even now i'm not really sure what how he was um obviously getting people to to commit these sort of acts of, of violence. I mean, they have this sort of like throwabout line of, of them being like this missionary ceremonial murders. and But there's never, I was kept waiting for like this big reveal uh, of like how so, he's been doing it. It just never really comes. So, so it's never, it's never sort of, the, 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 there's one scene where his mate, the um, psychologist, sort of starts explaining it to him. But the, I think the idea is, is that our um, Mamaya, is that his name? Yeah, Mamaya yeah. has studied the works of Mesmer, and whether he's the first person or he's, he's a couple of generations away, but basically Mesmer, who invented hypnosis, um, 
but more as a parlor trick than uh, than anything for medical concerns. And he's he's basically learnt this ability to hypnotize people using. Do you remember you, you you mentioned the flashing lights in the subway? Yeah. And yes. There's there's so what there is is he uses little repeated patterns, whether it's flashing lights or words and phrases that he uses over and over to hypnotise people. And basically that conversation that he's having with the policeman is an example of this, yeah, where he's sitting there talking to the policeman and getting and getting them to sort of ex- show what sort of people they are. And so he's, he's just learnt the art of hypnotising people, Darren Brown style, you know, just by talking to them or by using flashing lights and repeated patterns but it's not terribly clear and it reminds me very much of ring where you've got the um the character who is um i don't know some kind of uh academic who sort of says oh yes well it's all this this and this and and it doesn't really explain it it just buzzes around some some buzzwords and yeah this guy is i think there's a the, the idea is is that this power can be passed on to other people, but there is obviously a curse with it. So in Mamiyama's case, he's lost his mind, hasn't he? he? He has no idea who he is and what he's doing. He just knows he can do this thing. Um, and it does lead to a really interesting... Sort of, so another thing which I saw for the first time in this movie is that whole way that Japanese police like to get the old suspect up in front of a bunch of officials in a classroom style and berate them <laughs> to, 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 and I've, we see this in other Japanese police films and I've, I've never really understood it but in this case there's um, oh god I forgot what the character's called now um, Kenichi no, Takabe I guess but yeah. he, he yeah. basically just sits there and just lets them try and berate Miyama <laughs> and, and just this is what he does. Just ignore him and just sets them up and they don't get it and they fall into Miyami's, Miyama's trap. Um, but it is never really said. It's never yeah, really I mean, made clear. It's like, well, it's like Takabe can't be hypnotised by him. Yes. Which that's... forms his, their own, his own sort of uh, obsession with uh, Miyami. That's right. Like... But... Um... We get to this this big sort of like climactic showdown between the two, and it just basically is it's just as I said it's just very um, over and done with, and then we get this very sort of ambiguous ending. Um, Which interestingly, there are two endings. So I think a film from nineteen ninety seven we can talk about it. So yes, um, basically, Mam- Mamaya is is found guilty and arrested um, but then escapes Takabi meets him in a building in the middle of nowhere don't know how they both got there they just end up there right yeah and um, and uh, and I think that's where Mamaya is actually that's his home base isn't it that's the point because the Mesmer phonograph recordings there and uh, yeah he just shoots him <laughs> just just Bang. Like you say, pretty anticlimactic. But yeah. the inference is that he has then taken on the role that Mamaya had. And that, so that's why he couldn't be hypnotised, is because his personality is too strong or there's too much dark stuff going on in his head already. Maybe he's he's above the mundane. <laughs> he's just he's just more of the but, but that but obviously some of those visions that he's been having of his dead wife and things like that are 
are because there is something going on. There's a battle of minds going on that we can't see. But in the very final scene, we see him having um, having a meal in a cafe or in a restaurant. And he says something to the waitress. And then just as, as the film ends, we see her walking off with a gigantic gigantic bloody carving knife in her hand <laughs> um but i believe there is there was a version of the film where we saw her then go and kill somebody but that's not the version i've ever seen no. um that's just but, but i believe it exists so i believe there are some hidden uh, deleted scenes around the place and, and that's the main one which is maybe just to make it a bit clearer because it is all a bit it does end on a bit of a anticlimactic <laughs> it's about two hours long the film and, and it sort of just ends and yeah it's weird definitely so this is certainly a, a unique one to say um to say the least but um but very important in in the director's oeuvre because it's a film about identity if, if you know, if you want to take anything out of it, yes, it's a serial killer film. Yes, it's a police procedural, but it's a film about people's identity and what makes them them. And you look at all his films, and the vast majority of them, um, all are looking about, all interested in people and in identity. So in Charisma, which is another film with um, the same actor in, um, you look at Cairo Stroke Pulse. Um, you look at Doppelganger, where you get where you get two Koji Yakushos <laughs> for one. Um, uh, even to more modern stuff like Before We Vanish, the the interest is what makes us human, what makes us unique, what makes us different from each other, what makes us different from the animals. And this is a there's obviously an obsession of his that I would say hits seventy five percent of his films, and I don't think he's ever really done anything that's. Um, uh, you, you know, like Takeshi Miike's gone and done work for the big yeah. studios, and or the guy that did Versus went and did a Godzilla film. You know, the, his his contemporaries have all gone off and made. I don't know what the equivalent of a Japanese Hollywood film is, but a big studio film. I don't think he ever has. He's always stayed very true to his indie-ish roots. Um, but yeah, very very important because it. It, it, it was the first film like this that that got released, but it's really odd that it took nearly oh, 20, 25 years to come and get a release over here, which is very strange. I mean, it's not one that, um, as I said, that I probably would have, have, have hunted out. I mean, it's definitely, it was definitely an interesting uh, watch for sure. So I'm definitely glad that I checked it out in that, in that respect. Um... But yeah, it's. I think it was for myself. It was very much a one and done sort of viewing that I came away from this one with. Um, it was, as I say, it's a very unique take on the on the process. And I think, if, as I say, if you like Manhunt, I think you'd you'd really like this one as well. And it's very, the, as we said uh, at the start, they're just very similar in style there. So. Mm, yeah. So I've, I'd never, I've never put those films together. But you're absolutely right. That is the. That's that's a really good um, connection to make between the two, and the time's about right as well. Moments, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well done, sir. You can come back. Come back next episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've got nothing else to really add on this one. I don't know about yourself, Stuart. 
No, I'm just I'm glad you you, you seem to enjoyed it. Uh, I appreciate the fact you probably wouldn't go and hunt it down again. But to me, this is, this is an important film because it was all part of that reintroduction yeah. into Asian cinema for me. Um, so in the, for, from, I, I mean, I didn't see this in 1997. I must have seen this more like 2002, 2003, when, you know, when things like Audition and Ring were fascinating me and bringing me back into the world of Asian cinema through horror. And I also love serial killer films. So, again, this is this is feeding off Manhunter, Silence of the Lambs, Seven, all those kind of police procedurals with the worst that human race has got without being yeah. an outrageous horror film. Um, so it sits nicely in there. Um, it's not my favourite of his films um, by a long stretch. Um, you know, I will say I, I uh, Cairo stroke pulse is is the one that really got me but that is that's an art house horror (laughs) i think i I don't know i will bring it to the show because i think i've got it in my top 50 films yeah um but i think watch this first you'll get an idea of what the uh what the director's capable of and and i guess this is good to put any sort of say you know what would you pair it with go and have a look you know if you like this if you'd like the police procedural aspect of it Go and watch a film of his from 2016 called Creepy, which is another police procedural, another fantastic cast, um, diff- sort of same style, but you can see how he has grown and changed as a filmmaker. Um, it's it's like chalk and cheese. It's it's so much fuller and better, um, but also with a with a sort of subtlety to it as well. Um, and again, it's got aspects of, of people's <laughs> heads being fucked with. <laughs> so it's the same. Or, um, and the other one was a film I mentioned a few weeks ago, okay. Before We Vanish, which is um, from 2017, um, which is this is the one about three aliens come down from space to find out about people, and they find out about them by taking bits of their personality away from, from host bodies. And, uh, yeah, it's an apocalyptic... Um, horror film without much horror in it but it's a lot about human identity and actually uh how 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 and and from a very japanese perspective but yeah those two films much more modern films but probably easier to um easier to dig definitely creepy i think i think you i think you dig creepy um i think you'd enjoy that a lot um, well, this brings us to the end of tonight's episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. And if you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button uh, wherever you happen to be listening to us. And uh, you can follow us on Facebook, and we're also on Instagram, and you can check out our full um, archive episodes at theasiansimmerfilmclub.wordpress.com. And uh, also on our podcast feed, too, you may have seen it already, but we are currently breaking down Battle Royale, one DVD chapter at a time, as part of our um, sub-show, the Battle Royale podcast, which uh, you can also subscribe on its own independent feed as well. But uh, currently, in production-wise, we're about halfway through the film, and uh, we'll have those episodes uh, coming out over the coming weeks. So hopefully you can check those out as well. Uh, But next episode, it is my turn to pick, and the film I'm going to go with is some slightly lighter fare.
to say the least, as it's a Chinese-Taiwanese fantasy film called Battle Wizard from 1977, directed by Po Ho Lee, who is um, probably best known for doing the likes of Man of Iron. He did Boxer from Shang Tung as well. Um, and this is a fantasy kung fu movie, which is all I'm really going to say about this one. But um, certainly it's a film that struck a chord in some of the film circles we move in, such as like German's Guide to Midnight Circle, um, German's Guide to Midnight Cinema and uh, Asian Cinema Takeout to both uh, have fans within those groups who've spoken very highly of it. And I think it's going to be a fun one to check out. I've I've never heard of it. I have to, you know, Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movies. There are a lot to know about, aren't there? <laughs> um, but yeah, I've never heard of it. Um, look, looking forward to it. Um, yeah, a, a palate cleanser after some. We've had we've had a run of quite dark. <laughs> films. Yeah, <laughs> or compl- well, not, maybe not dark, but but we've had some complicated fare. Even even when we looked at you know like Millennium Actress, that's a. Uh, that, that, that's that's a lot going on there. Even the You're penguin film with the pe- with was dark. Penguin's memories only. Now I think basically, yeah, penguin's memory. I, I think uh, I think everything we've done since Mobius has been um, quite so. serious fare, and uh, it will be nice. It'd be nice to have a bit of, I don't know, light action. Yeah, because I mean the last light one we really did. I mean we did Project A. Um, and then oh, yes, then we were just like, time, no, yes. no more light fare for us. <laughs> we must just work, look at dark <laughs> stuff and weird stuff. and um, Yeah, let's, let's have a couple of episodes of, of but, lightness. Um, yeah, that's and... obviously on our next episode. Um, so hopefully you can join us for that one. But um, until then, thank you for listening. Thanks to my co-host, Stephen. Pleasure as always. And uh, we'll be back next time to talk about 1977's The Battle Wizard. But until then, good night. Hey! 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 This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.